Hello, hello, hello to you, squad. Welcome to another episode of Crime Squad Podcast with your host, Natasha. Today's episode is a weird one, so I hope you enjoy. As always, on this podcast, you will find Canadian true crime cases, both solved and unsolved. If this is up your alley, be sure to follow and rate the podcast. Join the squad. You ready? Let's do it. of us are raised to believe a certain working segment of society are safe and trustworthy. Obviously, there are going to be nuances to this, but in general, we teach our children that they can trust their teachers, police officers, firefighters, and doctors. These are all noble career choices, after all, ones that require shaping or protecting people. These are careers that require self-sacrifice for the well-being of others. Even I recall as a child being in public school and a police officer would come into the classroom to talk about traffic safety, making smart choices, and avoiding peer pressure, as well as alcohol and drug awareness. And in London, the London Health Sciences Centre actually has a program called IMPACT that seeks to educate youth about the impact of choices. Fun fact, in high school, I was towing the line between the right path and the wrong path. I was a good student overall, but in my third year of high school, I stopped caring about education and started caring about socialization and having fun. One of my teachers decided I was a great candidate for the impact program. My grades were slipping. I was coming to class late and reeked of pot. You get the picture. Things weren't great at home either. So off I went with a busload of other kids like me to a day long program called impact. And it did have an impact on me because I still remember it. 20 years later, and I still remember it. Basically, it featured a lot of education about what happens when you make the wrong choices, like driving under the influence, complete with extremely graphic videos of collisions resulting in injury and death. From there, we heard real stories from kids just like us who made bad decisions that changed their lives forever. Consequences, right? Now, within the next year, I'd be addicted to drugs and would end up dropping out of college and so forth, which I guess is the opposite effect they were looking to deliver. But like I said, I still remember the program, and I do think there was value in it. I can honestly say I've never driven drunk, and I attribute my avoidance of this to that program. So there was some life lessons learned after all. Now, doctors. We are taught that they are there to help us feel better when we're not well. We are taught we can trust them explicitly. We are often aware of just how long it takes to become an actual doctor through many, many years of schooling. But what we often aren't taught is that no matter what someone's career is, who their family is, how much money they have, some people are just not good people. Some people want nothing but to control or hurt others. Okay, squad. Let's get into the story of a Canadian doctor who was accused of some terrible crimes and was found innocent. Or was he? This one has a definite twist. Let's do it.
Kipling, Saskatchewan, a rural farming community, perhaps the very definition of small town Canada. The population today is just over a thousand people. One claim to fame of Kipling, one red paperclip, a large one at that. Kipling has a commemorative art piece that is the Guinness World Record certified as the world's largest paperclip. It stands 15 feet tall and weighs over 3,000 pounds. Why a paperclip? Well, in 2007, a Canadian blogger named Kyle McDonald started a social experiment where he attempted to trade items for bigger and better items across Canada and the United States. Long story short, his first trade was a small red paperclip, which he traded for a fist-shaped pen, and the last trade was a farmhouse in Kipling, Saskatchewan. If you want to know more about this, search one red paperclip on the internet. Now for our story. Squad, we have to rewind to 1992. A lot of interesting things happened in Canada in 1992. My childhood idol, Dr. Roberta Bondar, was the first neurologist and Canada's first female astronaut to go to space in January of 1992. The Bare Naked Ladies released their first album, Gordon, which featured the hit Brian Wilson. And in the small town of Kipling, Saskatchewan, a prominent doctor named Dr. John Schneeberger was continuing to build a great reputation among local residents. He had arrived in Kipling in the late 1980s from his native South Africa, and he was known to get things done in the community. One such example of this was when the doctor led a project to host a cabaret in order to fundraise for a local pool to be built for everyone to enjoy. And in stark contrast to Dr. Schneeberger's philanthropic image, a young mother in her 20s was witnessed in the beer tent at the fundraising event after settling an argument with her then-boyfriend by landing a punch. The residents tisk tisked this behavior. This comparison of standing would be a large reason why when, years later, Dr. Schneeberger would be assumed innocent after accused of a horrific crime. Halloween night of 1992, 23-year-old Candace Fonagy was working her shift at the local Esso gas station in Kipling. On that night, thoughts were running through her mind about her ex-boyfriend, Danny. Candace, who liked to go by Candy, suspected her boyfriend was cheating on her. He was known to lie to her, and she was getting tired of it. Danny showed up at the gas station and admitted he'd asked another girl out for dinner. This was enough for the couple to begin a heated argument, one that Candy decided was enough to leave work and go visit her girlfriend who worked at the Kipling Memorial Hospital. She needed to let off some steam. Candy was, after all, known to have a temper and could be prone to physical outbursts against those who made her angry. When Candy arrived at the hospital, she was dismayed to hear from a nurse that her friend wasn't working that evening. The nurse then asked a pivotal question. Did Candy want to see a doctor? Candy agreed, and the nurse called the on-call physician, who happened to be Dr. Schneeberger. This suited Candy just fine. After all, he'd been her family doctor for at least the last year. He'd treated her multiple times, close to 20 over the last year, and had also been the one to deliver her first child just nine months ago. Candy trusted Dr. Schneeberger explicitly, and had even at one point found the charming young doctor with the South African accent attractive. The doctor asked if Candy wanted a sedative, as it was clear she was all kinds of riled up. Expecting a few pills, Candy agreed. And that's when, in the small and private hospital exam room, Dr. Schneeberger produced a needle and gave Candy an injection. 
Within seconds, according to court testimony by Candy, she became extremely dizzy and disoriented. She felt paralyzed. What she had been given was actually a drug called midazolam, which is sold under the brand name Versid and is a benzodiazepine medication typically used for sedation. Its effects include a decrease in anxiety, increase in sleepiness, and also the loss of the ability to create new memories. Temporary amnesia is often present with the use of this drug. Candy was alarmed, but could do nothing to speak or move. If she could have, she was going to ask what the hell was going on. Instead, Candy felt her jeans being pulled down, her underwear moved to the side, and then something prodding her. Of this incident, she said, quote, I had no control of my muscles. I was scared. I tried to scream, end quote. She was barely conscious after all, and she also could not see who was behind her. Surely it wasn't her trusted doctor. Eventually, the unknown assailant left the room and Candy floated in and out of the drug-induced fog. When she finally came to later that evening, Candy called her friend who came to visit her. When her friend arrived, Candy showed her friend the evidence of what she believed to be a sexual assault, her pants and underwear with clear stains that appeared to be semen. Candy was unable to leave the hospital because of the state the medication left her in. She was still very dizzy and did not seem to be aware of what was going on. She stayed the night, and the next morning, she blatantly asked Dr. Schneeberger what medication he had given her. His response? Why? Did you have wild dreams? A very flippant answer, and one that wasn't even an answer at all. He apparently left her bedside without saying anything else. Candy did not want to let this go, however, so once she was home in the safety of her own surroundings, she called the hospital and spoke to the doctor later that afternoon. I commend her for this because I feel like a lot of women would be afraid to even accuse a prominent member of society of what had happened. Candy again very pointedly said to the doctor, quote, something really bad happened to me at the hospital, end quote. The doctor attempted to explain this away by telling Candy that sometimes elderly patients in the hospital escaped their own rooms and would crawl into bed with other patients, seemingly unaware the bed was occupied already. But Candy knew something wasn't right. And again, I admire her tenacity. She drove to Regina, a nearby city, later that day, and she asked for assistance, claiming she'd been sexually assaulted. What followed was a full exam, a report taken by an RCMP officer, and a discussion with two rape counselors. Candy did all the right things. You will never know the difficulty in accusing someone of a sex-based crime until you have been there yourself. A story for another day, but I have been there, having been assaulted when I was 18 years old by a stranger. And the hardest thing I've ever done is go to the police to explain my side of the story. And unfortunately for me and for many women, including Candy, justice wouldn't come easily, if at all. The officer who took Candy's statement asked to see her for a follow-up discussion. Candy was nervous and anxious to see what was going to come of the results. Was she going to be the one to take down a member of society that was well-known for being a good person? Only it didn't work out that way. The RCMP officer, a constable, Russ Bevins, claimed to Candy that they'd taken a blood sample from Dr. Schneeberger just 15 days after the reported assault. 
on November 15th, to be exact, and Officer Bevins had been in the room during the blood draw along with a doctor and a lab technician. Just like any other blood draw, a hypodermic needle was inserted into Dr. Schneeberger's left arm at the crook of the bicep and forearm, and the red fluid filled a tube which was later sent for DNA testing. It had taken quite a few months for the DNA to come back from the lab after it had been analyzed. And to Candy's shock, it was not a match. This meant Candy was not assaulted by Dr. Schneeberger. Instead of folding in defeat, Candy rose up in defiance. She knew something was wrong with that test. She was convinced of what had been done to her and who had done it. She was angry when she told Officer Bevins she was going to get to the bottom of this, and she would do her damnedest to do so. Meanwhile, like small towns do, the gossip was running steadily through the town. In a town with more farm animals than human residents, a town where everyone knows everyone, this only makes sense. Many people believed Candy, who didn't have the same kind of unspoiled reputation as Dr. Schneeberger, had ulterior motives for accusing the doctor of a crime. She was completely ostracized by everyone in the town of Kipling. But her parents knew she wouldn't make something like this up, and they stood by her the whole time. By August of 1993, Candy had been so vocal about the blood test results, she was able to successfully convince law enforcement to take another sample. She had accused Officer Bevins of working with the doctor to taint evidence, as well as insinuating the lab made a mistake. And yet again, the DNA test came back as negative. I think a lot of women at this point would retract their statement and try to move on. I feel like it would be really easy to start questioning yourself, asking yourself if it really happened that way, or if the drug had caused a hallucination. I can't imagine my hometown being totally and completely against me if I were in Candy's shoes. Despite the reported results of the blood test being negative for Dr. Schneeberger being the one to have sexually assaulted Candy, and despite townspeople believing Candy was trying to get money from the good doctor, Candy still refused to falter. If anything, she became more upset that he was somehow evading the law and vowed to make sure he wouldn't continue to get away with this. More than anything, Candy was concerned he was going to do it to someone else. But how was Dr. Schneeberger avoiding detection if he was truly the one that assaulted Candy? And if he was innocent, why was Candy so sure he had been the one to commit the terrible act against her that night? Examining this on the flip side, imagine for a moment you're a person in a position of power and you're accused of sexual assault by someone you had interacted with previously. The stress of something like this when you're innocent of this crime must take a huge toll. If you're in a relationship, your partner would probably always have a tiny glimmer of doubt, wondering if it was really true. People would talk behind your back about motives, likelihood, and so on. I imagine an accusation of this nature could be enough to ruin someone's life, even if they were found innocent in a court of law. Especially with a DNA test, when DNA is the thing we trust the most when it comes to catching criminals. Candy moved away from Kipling because of the malicious rumors from the townspeople, but she refused to back down. Candy actually ended up launching a civil suit against the doctor, and she also hired a private investigator to try to gather evidence. 
The private investigator began following Dr. Schneeberger in 1996 and stole a tube of chapstick from the doctor's vehicle. When this was tested against the semen on Candy's clothing, which she, by the way, paid for by herself, it was a perfect DNA match. It was startling and made no sense, but it drove Candy to continue to push for justice in a formal court of law. She took the results to police, and they were beginning to believe something was amiss. And so the RCMP through DNA, although through DNA had not been a match previously, rightfully had suspicions that something was off with Dr. Schneeberger. In a final effort to prove he was not the perpetrator, he offered to voluntarily provide an additional blood sample, the third one total. This time, the collection of blood was going to be completed by a serology expert named Jean Roney. Jean suggested the blood be taken from the end of Dr. Schneeberger's finger because only a small amount of blood is actually needed for DNA evaluation. Dr. Schneeberger, though, revealed that that wouldn't work for him. His reasoning? He had a rare disease that caused severe bruising to his fingers, so he didn't want to chance that happening if blood was drawn from a finger. He instead rolled up the sleeve of his shirt and presented his left arm to Jean. Jean stuck the needle into Dr. Schneeberger's vein, but something odd happened. No blood came out. Jean tried again, and this time a brownish liquid slowly dribbled out and into the collection tube. Jean felt this was odd and remarked to the RCMP officer present that it looked like old blood. But that's all that happened. It was just remarked upon. And yet again, this DNA would come back as no match to the man that assaulted Candy. By this time, the rumor mill was still running in Kipling, but for a different reason. This time, it was a rumor that a second victim had come forward, one who was only a 15-year-old girl. The stories were too similar in nature to be disregarded. The teenager had said Dr. Schneeberger had touched her numerous times after injecting her with a needle that sedated her. This had apparently been going on since she was only 13 years old. And the most horrifying part about this? It was Dr. Schneeberger's own stepdaughter. Lisa Dillman, Dr. Schneeberger's wife at the time, believed wholeheartedly in his innocence when he had been accused of rape by Candy. She stuck by her husband through the police questioning and the blood draws and was further vindicated every time the DNA came back without a match. She even had the nerve to call Candy a slut. This was too close to home, though, and Lisa, who had a child from a previous marriage as well as two children with Dr. Schneeberger, was devastated when her daughter finally admitted that she'd been abused at the hands of her own stepfather. Lisa asked the doctor to leave the family home and later found evidence that she handed over to the police. Among the doctor's private belongings located at both their family home as well as their cabin, Lisa had found boxes that contained some very concerning things. Taken out of medical context, the boxes painted a picture of a disturbed man who would stop at nothing to get what he wanted. Inside were needles, alcohol swabs, various drugs, including one called, you guessed it, Versed, as well as maybe one of the most damning evidence, pieces of all, condoms. John Schneeberger was arrested in 1997, just a short time after his stepdaughter came forward to her mother about what had been going on. 
This time, Dr. Schneeberger was ordered to provide a hair sample. And finally, his DNA was deemed to be a match to Candy's rape kit and the other evidence brought forward in his stepdaughter's case against him. Dr. Schneeberger would finally be charged with the crimes he had been accused of. It wouldn't be until nearly seven years after he first assaulted Candy, he would see his day in court. There were so many unanswered questions regarding how the doctor had escaped being identified by DNA, especially because his blood had been drawn so many times. Even more so because the chapstick that was stolen from his vehicle by Candy's private investigator had come back as a perfect match. The trouble was, because the chapstick was obtained unlawfully, it could not actually be permitted as evidence in the case against him. It was when Schneeberger took the stand that everything would become crystal clear. The doctor had avoided a match with the DNA blood tests because he'd done something very drastic to prevent it. He had taken blood from another patient of his and filled a long plastic tube with that blood. He then cut into his own bicep and implanted the plastic tube under his skin to act as a superficial vein. It was this tube filled with another man's blood that was pierced by the needle when Dr. Schneeberger was brought in for his blood samples. This was why, in the third attempt to obtain blood, serology expert Jane Roney had remarked that the blood drum from Dr. Schneeberger's arm appeared to be old blood, an odd brownish color that was almost the consistency of sludge. The blood, at that point, really was old. This despicable man knew he would be caught and went to any length he could to avoid detection. And yet, he still tried to defend his actions with the reason he provided for doing this. Not an admission of guilt, however, but an indication of safety measures against the evil 20-something female that accused him initially of sexual assault. This, of course, is referring to Candy. The reason Dr. Schneeberger claimed he needed to go to these lengths to prove his innocence? Because apparently his defense claim was that Candy had broken into his house, gone through his garbage to find a used condom, then used the contents of that condom by smearing them against her skin and clothing. He said the police were out to get him and he had to try and fool the DNA test because Candy was also against him for some reason or another. Can we just stop for one second and marvel at the audacity of this claim? I mean, really, it's laughable. If I wanted to get back at someone for something they wronged me, for I can tell you right now, my choice wouldn't be to go and find a used condom in their garbage and then smear their semen all over my body and clothes. It's just strange. Believe it or not, though, the judge actually found Dr. Schneeberger not guilty. Shocking, right? No, I'm totally joking. The judge did the right thing, found the doctor guilty of sexual assault and drugging, as well as obstructing justice. And the cases both women had against him were brought to justice. Actually, I want to specify um, not both women because one was a woman and one was a child. Let's not forget one of his victims was his very own teenage stepdaughter. An appeal was started almost immediately by the doctor, but before he could see another day in court to appeal the verdict, he was sentenced to six years in prison. He would eventually be released, having served about four years. He discreetly moved into a neighborhood in Regina, Saskatchewan. When this neighborhood found out there was a released sex offender in their midst, 
they were not impressed. At the time, there was no notification that the offender was moving close by, and one local mother feared for her 12-year-old daughter's safety. Perhaps the interesting thing about this newspaper article I found, however, is the question of rehabilitation. Do you think it's possible that a rapist can be rehabilitated? I'd love to know your thoughts. According to this article in the Leader Post in 2004, a man who identified himself as a close friend of Dr. Schneeberger, but refused to use his name fearing backlash, said, quote, if you had him for an next door neighbor, you'd be lucky. That's my estimation, end quote. The friend went on to say the media portrayed the doctor unfairly. One such mention was the fact that Dr. Schneeberger had been labeled a pedophile because he had drugged and raped his own stepdaughter starting when she was 13. This was apparently thought to be unfair, and the reason why? According to the friend, because the stepdaughter was 13 and had reached some level of sexual maturity when she was sexually abused. That is the most cringe statement, and it's a good thing this supposed friend didn't print his name because I feel like a lot of people would have taken issue with this. If a teenager is sexually assaulted, it's okay as long as they have some level of sexual maturity. Yikes. And this guy apparently even had kids of his own because he went on to tell reporter Bob Hughes that he had a few daughters himself and he would let Dr. Schneeberger live with them without a shred of worry. Dr. Schneeberger lost his medical license, was virtually left bankrupted, and was suffering greatly from the publicity around the case. It caused him to have issues getting a job. This friend is full of great quotes, by the way, in this article. Here's one, quote, He told me he's even afraid to get involved romantically with anybody, and as you may be aware, he's had lots of offers, end quote. Oh, and here's another gem explaining everything away. Quote, yes, he did do some stupid things, but just because he made a mistake, does that mean he should spend the rest of his life with a ball and chain? He'd just like to get on with his life. We all say things and do things we wish we hadn't. End quote. While that may be true, I just can't wrap my head around how someone can just move on with their life after careful consideration about drugging and raping people. Not only a woman in her 20s whom was a patient and therefore a total position of trust, but also a child who lived in the home and looked to Dr. Schneeberger as a father figure. This isn't just a small mistake, folks. Not in my opinion. Also, let's just tell the victims they should just move on and let sleeping dogs lie. After all, the trauma they experienced shouldn't linger over them because the doctor just made a stupid mistake. Okay, folks, that's going to do it for this episode of Crime Squad Podcast. What did you think of this episode? Have you heard the story before? A great television rendition of this episode is actually on one of my favorite shows, Forensic Files. If you want to see more, check it out. Candy is literally my hero. She has so much attitude to her. Also, fun fact, Paul Dowling, the executive producer of Forensic Files, has actually said that the episode about Dr. Schneeberger called Bad Blood is his favorite of all 400 episodes. The reason? Because of Candace Fonagy, the victim who wouldn't quit until justice was served. If you're new to the podcast, be sure to rate and follow. It really helps me in getting my voice out there. 
As always, I very much appreciate you listening to the show. If you have any ideas for episodes, be sure to reach out to me via Instagram at Crime Squad Pod. You can also reach me on Facebook by searching Crime Squad Podcast and by email at crimesquadpodcast at gmail.com. Hard to believe we're already in September. I'll see you back here in two weeks' time with another episode of Crime Squad Podcast. Remember, stay safe and be kind to each other.